Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. My guest today, Martin Whitaker. He heads a fascinating organization called Just Capital. It was started a few years back by hedge fund billionaire Paul Tudor Jones to try and measure whether companies are doing right by all their stakeholders, their employees, their customers, their communities, the overall society, as well as their shareholders. That is something near and dear to this podcast. They publish a ranking of America's largest publicly traded corporations each year. But lately, Martin, like the rest of us, has been obsessed with coronavirus, and he's been tracking how companies are responding to the pandemic. So, Martin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alan. I want to talk about your tracking in a minute, but first I want to talk about you. Uh, You apparently have been infected by the coronavirus yourself. Well, that's right. I'm actually still waiting for the confirmation. You know, my story is that my son returned from Europe three weeks ago, he had all the symptoms. Two days later, I came down with all the symptoms. And over the last two weeks and change, you know, I've basically been going through different phases of textbook symptoms. And, you know, there was a period in the middle where shortness of breath and, you know, an awful cough was really worrying. Thankfully, I'm fine now, but I got tested 10 days ago And even just calling today to try and get the results was told, well, you know, there's just a huge backlog, so we won't get the results back for a few more days. So it's been both, um, you know, a bit of a personal journey. My son is okay. My rest of my family, we're all in quarantine. Everyone's fine. But it really has sort of opened my eyes, not just to the sort of personal journey that so many people, millions of people are going through right now, but also just really concerned me about our knowledge of how quickly this is spreading and how important it is to get test results quickly. Because if you don't know how many people have it, you're really fighting an uphill battle on how to respond. I know you've been tracking how businesses are responding to this pandemic. What's the bottom line here? Are are businesses stepping up, doing what they need to do to fight both the uh, medical part of it, but also the economic part? Many are. We see businesses taking all kinds of responses. You know, what we're doing now is tracking how companies are responding overall. Um, It's what we do anyway as a nonprofit. We know from the polling we've been doing recently, sort of what the public expects companies to be doing. We also know people understand that company survival is at stake here in many cases, different industries. Everything now is being shown through this lens of coronavirus and the, the, the economic fallout. I expect it to be the defining criteria for business performance in 2020. Yeah. What we're doing is sort of looking at the immediate response, and we're seeing companies, for the most part, really react quickly, especially to their workers and their customers, you know, worker safety, giving people enough time to look after themselves or their loved ones giving people the the possibility of working from home if they can, staggering shifts, paid sick leave, things like that. And now gradually beginning to see not just the immediate emergency response, but what does this mean in terms of structural reform? How many companies are now beginning to think about, well, what does this look like over the long term? What does this mean for our industry? What does this mean for our company? Should we be manufacturing things differently? Do we need to be positioning the way we interact with customers differently? All of that. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, in the short term, it's questions like, are you providing enough sick leave? Are you giving people the opportunities they need to stay safe, to stay healthy? When you move to the medium term or start looking at the longer term, uh, you, you see companies thinking about the effect on the economy and potential layoffs. What are you looking for there? Well, we're, we're tracking what companies are saying they're doing around layoffs. So it's how companies go about doing that how they think about all the other measures they can do before they lay people off. So is that a that a last resort or is that the first thing companies begin to do? So where do layoffs fall in the hierarchy of responses? We're seeing companies now make commitments through the end of the year, for example, um, if they're able to do that. So no layoffs in 2020. We've seen furloughs used. We've seen staggered shifts being implemented but in some cases, like today, you know, especially in the retail sector, the hospitality sector, layoffs are inevitable. And so yeah. who's being laid off? How are those folks being looked at? Is there some sort of disproportionate impact on you know, the lowest, most vulnerable workers? What happens to them? And are those companies taking government money, for example? What are they doing with that? How are they shifting their priorities, if you will, so that they're not only focused, as they have been in the past, on just looking after shareholders. That's a complicated equation that you're talking about, Martin. Let's take a specific example. One of the first to announce layoffs or furloughs was Marriott. Their hotel bookings were down 70, 80. In China, 90%. They said, we can't keep all these employees, and so they, and so they put them on the street. Did they do that the right way, the wrong way? How do you even know if they did it the right way or the wrong way? I don't think it's this moment is the right moment to say the way you're doing things is just wrong, or unless it's an egregious act to essentially leave people high and dry. So we're trying to be as measured as we can. We have a a CEO advisory council that we go to with these questions. The feedback we were getting is don't be really quick to judge today how companies are reacting in survival mode. So I'm joined now by the amazing Ellen McGirt. Uh, She's a senior editor at Fortune, and she's agreed to become my partner uh, on these Leadership Next podcasts. I'm so excited about that. Thank you, Ellen. Hi, Alan. It's great to be with you. We are living in interesting times. Very interesting times. No question about that. So, Ellen, Martin says Just Capital is looking at how companies are managing through this crisis and particularly how they're treating their workforce. What we're witnessing here is unprecedented in our lifetime. In the last two weeks alone, 10 million Americans have applied for unemployment benefits. How do you think companies are handling this? You know, you're absolutely right. These are unprecedented and deeply painful times. And we all know that every employee is connected to a family and a larger community. Everyone is scared and everyone is overwhelmed at what the coronavirus might mean to them personally. So the prospect of losing income is even more painful. But what's clear from my reporting this week is that everyone, and I really do mean everyone, from a frontline supervisor to a chief executive, has a number in front of them. And that number is terrifying. It could be a percent of sales lost, lost revenue. All of it revolves around making very difficult decisions, which projects to cut, which ideas to defund, and of course, most painfully, which people might have to go. But Martin is also right. We're not going to really know, unless it's egregious, how well or poorly CEOs are handling the human side of this. But here's some good examples. Disney, 
Dick's Sporting Goods, Marriott, as we've talked about, Vice. Everyone's cutting their pay, taking the sacrifice first. Lyft co-founders, John Zimmer and Logan Green, are contributing some of their salaries to drivers, at least through June. And Netflix um, has set up a $100 million fund for a laid-off crew, which was sort of a beautiful gesture that signaled that they really understood the pain. But for the most part, the layoffs, and I'm thinking in particular of Macy's, who's furloughing 125,000 people this week, are just painful. Yeah, I, I don't know what else you're supposed to do if you're in one of those really frontline industries like the hotel businesses, the airline businesses, a company like Macy's, and, and particularly for smaller businesses, you know, if you run a restaurant or something like that. And as you said, they have a number in front of them and they only have so much cash. That's exactly right. And to that point, not everyone's handling the crisis in the same way. Hyatt Hotels CEO Mark Koplamazian had to lay off and furlough thousands of employees in the wake of the pandemic. But he also took some interesting and really creative steps to mitigate the effects of those cutbacks. We were lucky enough to have Fortune's Susie Garib speak to him this week about that. So why don't we play that sound? Tell us about some of the actions that you've had to take because of coronavirus. Yes, it's been a very, very torturous time. The way I would describe it is a conflict between our purpose as a company, which is to care for people, and the things that we have to do because we're charged with ensuring the financial future of Hyatt so that we can welcome people back and get back to travel. It's been a very challenging time because we've had to put on temporary leave a very large number of people working in our hotels. And as to the corporate office, two-thirds of our corporate colleagues have either been put on temporary leave or had their work weeks reduced very significantly. And even though we have to take some actions, like putting people on temporary leave, it's the way we do it that matters the most. So we're trying to extend ourselves. We're putting people out on furlough and not layoffs that allows them to apply for unemployment benefits, but maintain health care. We've established a high care fund to help provide financial support for those who are most in need. And finally, we're partnering with over 10 companies that are currently hiring. Companies like Walmart and Pepsi and CVS and Walgreens, we're very grateful to them for allowing us to plug straight into their, their application processes online to help our colleagues find work there if they want to work during their furlough. But if this crisis drags on, how can you prevent layoffs? Could that be in your future? I think we don't see that as a reasonable expectation at this point because uh, we believe that this crisis will have a term associated with it that is measured in a couple of months as opposed to a year. Uh, if it did extend and we had guidelines that are in place right now, including shelter at home and restrictions on travel that are pretty severe, if that persisted for as much as a year, then I would say we, we'd have to really reconsider a lot of things. But if we're in that sort of situation, I would say the entire economy would end up being, I think, in a state of, of crisis. Um, so I hope and pray that that's not the case, and I don't expect it to be the case based on everything that I've been evaluating and seeing in terms of how the virus is unfolding. So what Mark says right there is really the scary piece, and it's a bit beyond hopes and prayers at this point, right? We need data. We need information. Yeah, there's no question there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I worry Mark Koplamazian, when he talks about a couple of months, is being uh, overly optimistic. Uh, but as you said, we don't have enough data now to really know. So I want to go back to Martin Whitaker. He recognized another company for its quick reaction to protecting workers during the pandemic. So Target extended benefits 
for all of their associates and their families. They immediately began to focus on drive up and order pickup services from the stores to minimize contact. So what you saw was a sort of a multi-pronged response very quickly that prioritized the safety and health of their workers and their customers in a way that protected both and provided a degree of sort of security um, in terms of employment. Now, how that will play out, I don't know, obviously, but that sort of was a good example of how a very sort of large multi-stakeholder solution could be implemented quickly and provide real leadership for the sector. That's sort of, I think, a good a good example of how a company-wide approach can work. Where do the shareholders fit in here? I mean, you've got retirees who are looking at the value of their retirement funds disappear as the market drops. You've got pension funds that are in desperate straits because of what's happened in the market. They're obviously stakeholders too. People's retirement funds are at risk. How do you think about them in this equation? How companies think about their shareholders as a stakeholder is very important. You know, we're not saying that companies should jeopardize their viability, their long-term financial health through a short-term need. I think any fiduciary of a publicly traded company is now trying to balance all of that and ensure that their organization charts a safe passage through that. So I think it is a balancing act. I don't think there is one formula that works. I, I think you have to ensure the safety and the long-term viability of the, of the company. So shareholders should be better served, in our view, if they've built a resilient company that is able to withstand the kind of storm we're going through right now. Yeah. You know, we, we went through a major tax cuts and jobs act a couple of years ago, right? If that cash has not really been used to create the kind of strength within a company across its different stakeholders, if it's all been returned to shareholders, and now there's not a lot left to see you through a storm, that's not good management. I get the uh, returning cash to shareholders, shareholder buybacks. How about executive pay? What's the right way to deal with executive pay in an environment like this? You know, we've seen responses across the board from executives who have frozen executive pay, who have taken pay cuts in order to ensure that lowest paid workers can remain viable. You know, I think it's going to be a long time before we return to a situation where executive compensation outstrips worker pay without any sort of pushback from the public. To, to me, it's sort of, you know, we're going through a period now where there's a reset of corporate priorities, including executive pay. So I imagine that once we're through this immediate crisis, that there's going to be sort of a rebalancing perhaps or a reframing of how compensation is structured. Every company is, is implementing new policies now around everything from shift work to raising wages. You know, so is all of that going to be go, go back to normal? I, I can't believe that. Yeah, every crisis leads to permanent change. We certainly saw that in the Great Recession. It changed the system in a lot of different ways. We're still living with some of the consequences. You think this will be no different? Yeah, because most of those workers, um, you know, we know from our own analysis, it's probably around, I mean, there are millions of workers, you know, six to 10 million workers who are reliant to some degree on government support just to make ends meet. This is before the crisis. So what I think is happening is well, we know what's happening is, you know, companies are stepping up in hospitality, in retail, in banking, in anywhere where, you know, large employers 
are shifting how they're you know looking after their workforce is that seriously going to go back to the way it was i just i just can't see that happening i don't see that being allowed especially if companies have taken any kind of support any kind of bailout any 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 sort of government support are we are we really going to accept a company that says you know what we've decided that actually now we're going to lower wages or we're going to reduce benefits or we're going to go back to worse paid sick leave policies. It's, that's, it's not going to happen. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we all know that what gets measured gets managed. Folks like your colleagues at Deloitte have spent a century building up metrics to keep track of shareholder return. But how do we measure stakeholder return? This is still all about measuring attributes that do, in fact, drive shareholder value. Because over the long term, if you are driving indicators that represent value creation to your stakeholders, that will translate into premium returns to your shareholders. So this is really about as lengthening our horizon. It's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. There's an enormous amount of work to be done, but you're seeing a real sense of urgency around this. I think that's a really important point, that in the long term, over years, decades, the interests of shareholders and the interests of the stakeholders converge. But in the short term, they can often go in different directions. They certainly can. But what you see is leading investors encouraging the companies they invest in to make certain that they are building building and leading sustainable enterprises with the objective of maximizing shareholder value over a long time. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Martin, I want to talk about your ranking because that's really what you were created to do, to rank the largest publicly traded companies by how they're doing against these measures that the public wants to see them performing against. I think I'm right that Microsoft was at the top of the most recent list, right? Yeah, that's right. What did Microsoft do to get there? Well, Microsoft was strong across practically all of the things that we measure. So they have demonstrated an incredibly strong track record of investing in their workforce. They're incredibly transparent about things like pay equity, for example. They had a culture that we felt really embraced this idea of a stakeholder-led business that reflected itself across all of the metrics. You know, they're very strong on environment and climate, of course, but we also saw that they were adjusting their core operations to begin to sort of apply technology and apply their computer platforms to address societal problems. And they've seen that with how they're offering cloud services right now in response to coronavirus. One of the things that's very clear, if you look at the top 10 list, that they're all companies that make a lot of money. I mean, this is much easier to do if the money is coming in than when when things are tight, isn't it? Well, I push back on that. That logic would suggest that you become just, you start to think about your other stakeholders once you've become financially successful, as opposed to that being your operating framework to become successful. All of the companies that outperform their peers within the industry that are leaders at looking after their workers and their customers and their shareholders and the environment, they tend to outperform financially 
their peers with it across all the sectors. So, and we've seen that in our index. Our index is a basket of the best companies in every sector. And it performs well. And it outperforms the benchmark by a country mile. Yeah. Martin, all the issues you're looking at, how companies treat their employees, how companies treat the communities they operate in, what they do for the environment, these are all the things that are at the core of what we're trying to do on this podcast, uh, Leadership Next. But I, but I want to ask you a fundamental question as someone who has been watching this for some time. Do you think companies are doing a better job today than they've done in the past? Quite honestly, I do. I feel like, I, I think, you know, if I look back over the 20 years that I've been looking at companies' response to, let's say, non-traditional, you know, dimensions of performance, began with environment, providing safer products, healthier products, environmentally beneficial products, is actually a business model. So that that takes a long time, but that's what's happened in that space. Laterally, you've seen that on social issues, and especially in the last several years. And I think what's happening is, you know, the generational shift, people entering the workforce today, talented folks, they demand more. They reject this idea that somehow we have to check our values at the door every day. You see that in the way companies think about how they provide employees with different kinds of benefits and flexibility in that. Now, I will say one of the problems, though, is that, especially going back to the financial crisis, now you've seen really growing inequality. And I think that's a real problem. So we have this bifurcation of society where you know, for the lowest paid, most vulnerable workers, actually, I'm not sure that a lot is getting any better. Wages have, you know, stagnated for the most part. They will come out of this crisis worse off than those who went in in the upper echelon. So I feel like this is, if we're not, if we go back to a, a, a the old way, you know, if we come out of this crisis and the normal, you know, we're back to normal, I think we're going to have real problems. So I think this is a moment where we really should reflect on what new normal do we want to create? Because you, you cannot grow the pie f- for people if they just don't feel like it's working for them. What's the new normal we want to create? That's a question I've been hearing a lot from CEOs uh, in the past couple of weeks. Fortune last week brought together 40 of them, CEOs, members of the Fortune CEO Initiative, including, by the way, the CEO of Target, who we were talking about earlier, to discuss this. Ellen, you were there with me. What was your sense of how the CEOs are thinking about business as they navigate through this crisis? I was there indeed. Um, first, I just want to set the scene for listeners. You know, This is the convening of CEOs who are part of a fortune community that is serious about aligning their bottom line businesses to deal with pressing social needs. But these meetings typically take place in a conference room, you know, corporate uniforms on, coffee service on the side. But for this one, people zoomed in from their homes. Alan, I don't know how you felt, but I felt like we were in a situation room. Like that was the level of intensity that we were dealing with there. So they talked about the crush of data coming at them, the need for near constant scenario planning, and just how vulnerable certain constituents were to the actual disease, which of course is a terrifying reality. And they're sharing their best ideas about how to get back to work. But one CEO in particular explained that their cycle of decision-making had been reduced to a daily process. Assess, address, adapt. It's been a mantra in my head ever since. And of course, like many of us, I'm stuck on adapt. I think we're only now understanding how the ways companies are able to adapt so quickly, large and small, and how that's going to change the way people work 
going forward. Even working from home is going to revolutionize life for people with disabilities, working parents, people who are phoning in amazing ideas from rural areas. But how are we really going to move the needle on things like climate change and inequality going forward? That's the hopeful future that I think we're starting to see a way to speak about once we get past this painful present. Yeah, Ellen, the other thing that struck me about that conversation was how many of the CEOs talked about the crisis as giving them a pride and kind of permission to innovate. Uh, they said, you know, there's a lot of creative thinking going on at their companies that in responding to a crisis, you don't demand perfection. And that makes it easier for people to try new things, experiment with new new ways. And uh, the consistent theme across all, all of the 40 plus CEOs who were there is they're not looking to go back to normal. They're looking to create something new. What are we going to look like when we come out of it? It was inspiring in some ways, but that's what the CEOs of big corporations were thinking about. One of the things I wanted to know for Martin Whitaker was, what about all the small businesses, the restaurants, the retail stores that are shut down, small manufacturers who can't run their factories, all being heavily impacted in the months ahead? I think we're going to see lots of consolidation within different industries. We're going to see a whole new wave of M&A. You know, the corporate bankers that I know, the corporate lawyers, they're all working 24-7 to respond to small and medium-sized business needs. I'd also think that private equity is going to play a huge role here. You're going to see a lot of private equity firms who were sitting on a huge amount of cash. They're, they're going to be on a buying spree. So one question overall is to what extent are private equity firms going to now be embracing a stakeholder framework? Are they going to be um, in order to drive return, are they going to be implementing and maintaining these these sort of higher levels of worker benefits? Are they going to be investing? Are their portfolio companies going to be investing in more community-led or customer-led initiatives, or are they going to be solely focused on driving financial return? So that's I think going to be a really interesting question. And I think again, this crisis is putting a sort of a you know, a white hot light on that to say, okay, who's actually for real here? But you're not worried that as investors start looking at their declining returns and feel the pain on their portfolios, that they uh, start to say, oh, forget all this ESG stuff, just give me my money. No, because I think companies that have, and portfolios that have really been embracing true corporate sustainability leadership seem to be doing better. So if I'm an investor, I'm looking forward to an incredibly uncertain next few years. You know, we've just borrowed a huge amount of money from the future. So how am I going to be thinking about this as a long-term investor? Sure, there are going to be people trading around this. There always will be. That's fine. That's part of the market. But most long-term investors, I'm thinking big public pension funds, uh, you know, defined contribution plans, they're going to be looking at this number dispassionately and saying, okay, have these companies really done better? If so, that's actually gonna have the opposite effect, Alan. I think it's gonna have, it's gonna chase a lot more dollars interested into, into portfolios, into companies that have you know, shown to be real stakeholder leaders. 
Martin, I hope you're right. I think you probably are right, but we'll find out soon enough. Thanks so much for the great work you're doing in this area. Measurement is critical, and and it's not easy, and you've really uh, been a pioneer in trying to figure out how to get your arms around it. Uh, And the world is fortunate that you're doing it, so keep it up. Thanks, Alan. Leadership Next is produced by Dan Sacker, edited and engineered by Nicole Vergala, and written by me, Alan Murray, and Dan Sacker. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-Suite Insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.